We've been working through this series. Um, in fact, we're coming to the last one this evening. Just looking at the life of this man called Samson. And we called the series uh, Between Two Pillars. And those of you who are not familiar with the story of Samson, uh, I guess you'll see now why we've called it Between Two Pillars, because we've got that sort of iconic, climactic moment where Samson stood between two pillars in the temple, pulls them together, and the whole temple collapses. But on another level, if you've been able to spend time with us over these past few weeks, what we've also seen is that in a real way, Samson lived his life between two pillars, didn't he? He he lived his life from the very beginning, It was recognized, he was called by God, he was identified by God, he was set apart by God for a particular mission and ministry. He was to be a deliverer of his people. That's one pillar, if you like, one solid object, one solid reality. On the other hand, what we've seen is that he really didn't live his life like that. He he didn't live fulfilling uh, the requirements of being set apart, somebody who is identified and set apart. That is a huge challenge for us today. Without a doubt, we are living in an age which is struggling with the concept of being a believer in Jesus Christ and being set apart. We are called to be that. Now, I know, and, and you know, those of you who know me, would know that I would, um, I would recognize that what it means to be set apart in today's uh, world it is a real challenge and something which we've continually got to be working through and, uh, and rethinking and reshaping and so that we are both faithful and relevant. We have to be both faithful and relevant. We have to be that. But at the same time, I think in the desire to be relevant, very often we lose the the fact that we need to be faithful. And that's Samson's problem. It wasn't necessarily that he was on a mission to be uh, totally relevant. It was just that he was swept up in it. We've used the description that he was so absorbed in, in what was going on around him that he was like a piece of bread in water where he just was filled with what was going on around him, totally absorbed everything, started to break up and no longer look like the man that he was called to be. We reach this sort of well-known, well-recognized Hollywood blockbuster-type moment where we have the classic story now of Samson and Delilah. It's, if you like, it's the biblical Matahari. Those of you who don't know, Matahari was an exotic dancer in World War I who was um, tried for spying. Uh, and she, she was eventually executed, accused of being responsible for the death of 50,000 Allied soldiers. Uh, and she had lived a life of, of glamour and a risque life, and she had lived a life appealing to men. And now we have if you like, our biblical Matahari, Delilah, somebody who we see right at the very beginning as we come into this chapter, as we see this story opening up, we see that Samson has been grabbed by her in his head, 
in his heart, in his affections. He's fallen in love with her. We see that in verse 4. He fell in love with a woman in the valley of Sorak whose name was Delilah. He's, he's, he's again, <laughs> you know, if you want, if you want a picture uh, of um, a, a repeated pattern, look at Samson. The problem of a repeated pattern not being broken. Here he is again, he's fallen for this woman, Delilah. Now what we see is that there is some conspiracy that is going on. We see that she is in some way, we don't actually know whether she is a Philistine herself. Some would assume that she is, but it's not absolutely clear. We also know that God's people, God's people of Israel are in such a mess that she could just as easily be an Israelite herself. It is possible. But one way or another, we find and we see that this woman, Delilah, she's uh, in league with the rulers of the Philistines and she is on a mission to find out the secret of Samson's strength. What's the secret? Uh, And so we have this uh, spy on a mission to overthrow the opposition, which is Samson. But it's deeper than that, isn't it? Samson has been set apart to be a saviour of God's people from the Philistines. And now we see that in some way he is, he is captured by this woman in his affections. Guys, just, I mean, that is just such a warning, isn't it? Girls, that is just equally such a warning for you. Our hearts are not well controlled. Our affections are not well controlled. We can so easily get sidetracked. We can so easily get knocked off course. We need help outside of ourselves to stay on track. And we see that Samson falls again. And you might say, well, okay. He, he, he didn't know. He didn't know that she was, she was on this mission. Well, he didn't know initially. She comes along to him and she plays the sob story. Uh, Why is it that you won't tell me your great strength? Tell me the secret of your great strength and how how you can be tied up and subdued. Now, (laughs) I don't know about you, but that that kind of question, it, it, it just might have rung some alarm bells. If he didn't know beforehand that Delilah was on a mission to capture him, and to turn him over, that question might just have given him, or it should have at least started some alarm bells ringing, shouldn't it? What he actually asks, what she asks is, uh, tell me how you can be tied up and subdued. Should have rung some alarm bells, but he goes along with it, because his heart is in the wrong place. His heart is in the wrong place, so he goes with it. If anyone tells, ties me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, I'll become as weak as any other man. So she ties him up. And then the game starts. Um, do you remember in the, do you remember, don't know whether you did this, um, maybe, it's, maybe it's something of a particular generation. If I'm showing my age, I'm really sorry. Uh, so you might be older than me and think I'm strange. You might be younger than, than me and think I'm really weird. But we used to walk around the, the, the playground arm in arm saying, all in the game for war. 
Uh, and you'd, can't, you'd kind of get this huge, great long line of lads who were all arm in arm, catch, get, grabbing a whole load of people to play war during playtime. And then by the end of playtime, you've managed to gather 30 people and you haven't got any time to play war. <laughs> That's the way it went. Well, this is a game of uh, Spot the Philistines that Delilah starts to play. Because as soon as Samson is tied up, she shouts out, Philistine, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. The game starts. He stands up and he just breaks the cords as though they're just nothing. Just nothing. And you might say, well, okay, Samson. We'll give you the benefit of the doubt. We'll just presume that you didn't know first time round. But you know when Delilah says the Philistines are upon you? Uh, having tied you up, did you get the idea that she might just be working with them? I don't know. It might be that his heart was so taken to the wrong place that he just didn't get it. One way or another, either he is stupid or he's blinded by false affection, either of which are a crisis at this point in time. The game carries on. Having asked him once, she then asks him again, you've made a fool of me. You lied to me. Come now, tell me, how can you be tied? Now, you've made a fool of me. Before whom, Delilah? Before whom has Samson made a fool of you? Before the Philistines? So she asks again. It's it's bizarre, isn't it? The way the story unfolds. So Samson tells her another tale. Seven new ropes will do the trick. Tie me with seven new ropes and that will be it. Now we've moved from uncured bowstrings, which were actually quite weak, to seven new ropes, which are actually quite strong. And he still breaks them. When the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And there there we go. Now, if that hadn't reached the point in Samson's mind, where he knows that Delilah is on, on a game with the Philistines, then we've got a real problem. But you see the shift that now takes place. There is a shift. Because now he says, weave my seven locks of hair into the loom. And then my strength will be gone. Now, Samson, now you are beginning to play with fire. Because you are getting so close, aren't you? You've played a game. You're in it for fun. At the moment, let's think of it another way. Let's imagine that Samson knows all along that the Philistines are in league with Delilah. And he knows that he can get up and he can break ropes, he can break bowstrings at any point in time. But now you're getting a bit close to the knuckle. You're getting so close because we're starting to talk about hair. She weaves his hair while he's asleep into the loom and secures it with a pin. The Philistines are upon you, Samson. 
he gets up and can imagine that there's this huge clatter as the loom, which is obviously going to be a prized possession of Delilah's, falls apart behind him, gets literally destroyed, and the Philistines flee. And then it happens. The waterworks turn on again. You've made a fool of me. How can I possibly, how can I possibly show myself before other people? Don't you trust me? Isn't there a way in which you, we can be in a proper relationship? A proper relationship? A relationship which does what? I tell you the truth and then you hand me over to the enemies. That kind of relationship? Is that the kind of good relationship that you want, Delilah? And he tells her the truth. I think there's a, a really interesting perspective to this. He tells her the truth, and we find that uh, she shaves his head. Philistines are upon you. And he gets up, and he cannot do anything. He awoke from his sleep, and he thought, I'll go out as before and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him, verse 20. That's it. It's a funny thing, isn't it, this hair thing? Is that where Samson's strength was? Was his strength in the hair? What we've read on all of the previous occasions, pretty much, when Samson uh, moves in an incredible way and does something superhuman, we read something really important which the storyteller, the narrator, tells us. He tells us that the Spirit of God came upon him. The Spirit of God came upon Samson and, and it was that which gave him the strength. What does Samson say when Delilah asks him, what is your strength, Samson? What would the right answer be? The right answer would be, my strength is in Yahweh. My strength is in God. The real God, the true God, the living God. That's where my strength is in. But Samson continues to think that all of the strength is within him. He says, my strength is in my hair. Look at what he says uh, in verse 17. So he told her everything. No razor has ever been used on my head, he said, because I have been a Nazarite dedicated to God from my mother's womb. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me and I would become as weak as any other man. That is ironic. <laughs> that is ironic. Because he says, my strength is in my hair. I've been a Nazarite set apart from God. Samson, set apart from God, for God for all of his life? That's precisely what he hasn't been. He hasn't lived like that. He hasn't lived the life that has been set apart. The narrator has made it so clear. He, he hasn't been a Nazarite. The hair is a symbol. It's a picture. It's something which doesn't actually give you strength or, or take away strength. You know? Samson has been living a life which has not been the life of a Nazarite and yet, incredibly, God has still been faithful to his promises. God has still been with him. God has still been working in him. He lives a life now which is dancing with danger. 
He's playing with his calling. He's being dishonest to Delilah. He's even being dishonest to himself. I've never really been a Nazarite, but I still think that that's what it's all about. And his hair is cut. And here's the real answer to why he's no longer strong. Because the Lord has left him. That's the real answer. He found out the hard way that his strength was not in his hair. He found out the hard way that it was when God was either with him or God was not with him. He got up and he was going to turn the Philistines over again. And he finds God is no longer with me. I think in lots of ways those words are some of the most powerful and salutary words in the Bible. If God is who he is, if God really is the creator who he is, if he is the one who intervenes in life today through the, by the power of his spirit, if he is the one who has entered into this world in Jesus Christ himself, the son of the living God, if he is the one who engages with his people, if there is a reality of eternity, if there is a reality of that eternity in our hearts today through his presence, the idea that God might leave us should be the most terrifying aspect that could ever cross our minds. And yet so many of us, so many of us just live as if it doesn't matter whether God is with me or against me. We just live like that, don't we? we? You might be living like that. You might never have reached the point of seeing that God is a true living being who makes demands upon you. Who is not, not sat on the fence. God is not sat on the fence when it comes to you and me. He is either with us or he is against us. God is for us or God is against us. We have either given ourselves to him or we stand opposed to him. We might stand opposed to him with the nicest, sweetest faces that we have, but we stand opposed to him. And God was not with Samson at this point. And as soon as God is not with Samson, he's blind. Do you see that picture? Yes, he's blind because the Philistines take him and, and just, well, you know, we've asked the question time and time and time again. Does this, sound, does this sound like ethnic cleansing? Does this sound like God dealing in a horrible way with people who are just trying to get on with their lives? Here's the reality of what Philistines are like. They take their man and they gouge out his eyes. That's what they do with the captives. They gouge out his eyes. But in a sense, there's a tremendous picture there, isn't there? Samson is now blind. <laughs> He's blind spiritually as well. As well as physically blind. I don't know about you, but... Uh, 40 years, I think it is, that uh, Gaddafi had been in power. A tyrant. Shocking man. Just... Somebody who, was, who just did not care a moment about people other than himself and those who were with him. There was no mercy with Gaddafi. But I still don't think it's right for people to behave in, in a horrendous way to anybody. 
And here we see the Philistines behaving in just a feral way when it comes to this man, Samson. He's blinded, he's put into prison and he's given a hand mill to grind corn. Now, bizarrely, some have suggested uh, the donkey of the previous chapter, Samson becomes the donkey. (laughs) He's the one who's now grinding the corn, just going round and round, grinding the mill. And here he is. The strong has become weak. He did not know that the Lord had left him. The hero is now blinded and he's set to work. What we said last week is that a lot of this story, there's a little bit of a joke going on. There's a, there's a kind of, there's a, a dark humour going on. <laughs> and we have just that coming up now. Here we have the next phase in the story. We've got Samson in prison, incredibly weak, uh, and we have the Philistines who are now just overjoyed. We've got the one who's been uh, our problem. Here we are, we're praising our God. We've got all, everything is going well. And then we see in verse 22, this little line. Guess what? Hair grows. (laughs) Well, it does for most people anyway. And it did for Samson. Hair grows. And that's the kind of joke. We've got it on the Philistines. All of, this, all of Samson's strength is gone because his hair has been cut. But right at the very point of hopelessness, it's as though there is a little spark of hope. There's little indication here. Maybe something is going to happen. The Philistines see this as a win for their God, Dagon. God, the creator of the universe, the God of the Hebrews, the one who is not seen, versus God, Dagon, the great statue in a temple. That's the face-off that we see In verse 23 onwards. We see it in the words that are used. In verse 23. Our God. Has delivered Samson our enemy into our hands. The underlying story there is. The underlying thought is. Our God is stronger. Our God has triumphed. Our God is the one who has won. Our God is the one who is all powerful. Do you remember we said right at the very beginning when we started this journey through Samson, that was the mind of the ancients. This is about the power of the gods. And what we see here now is that they say, our God has won. Our God is all powerful. The people praised their God, saying, Our God has delivered our enemy into our hands, the one who laid waste our land and multiplied our slain. And they call a great feast and they bring Samson to the temple. And it is at this point that the standoff really occurs. God against God. But the God of the Hebrews, the unseen God, the creator of all things, the true God, He's working again. Samson's hair is growing. But that's not everything. They bring Samson out. And they place him amongst the crowd. 
in this great temple, there's 3,000 people on the roof looking down, watching Samson being ridiculed and watching him perform, whatever that means. Uh, And we see that there is something else that is going on now in Samson. We read in verse 28, Then Samson prayed to the Lord. This prayer is incredibly important in the story of Samson. Every other point where he prays, in fact it's only one occasion where he prays previously, he calls upon God Elohim in the Hebrew, the same God as is used by the Philistines for Dagon, Elohim. Where we say our God, they are saying our Elohim has delivered Samson into our hands. But at this point, Samson prayed, Yahweh. I would suggest to you that it is at this point That Samson really, for the first time, for the first moment, understands who he is. He understands who God is. For the first moment he declares, Yahweh, Sovereign Lord, will you remember me? I call out to you at the point where all of these are crying out to their God, where there is a cacophony of praise to the God Dagon, there is one voice, one voice crying Yahweh. Every other voice is declaring praise to Dagon. There is a huge sound. There is this incredible volume of praise to a false God. And there is one solitary voice saying Yahweh. What's the odds? Who's going to win? Who's who's the most powerful in that? The blind, helpless Samson who needs to be leaned against pillows, pillows, pillars. The blind, helpless Samson against the ruling elite of the Philistines. The good and the great of the Philistines all under one roof. Thousands on the roof. Praise, we've got him, we've won. But God in heaven hears his voice. And that makes all the difference. And makes all the difference. The sovereign God, the creator who is above, who is above the humdrum noise to Dagon. The real living God intervenes. And when they stand in stark opposition, you remember what we're saying right the way through the storyline of the Bible, it's about whether we accept the truth of the living creator God or whether we go and we worship other things. And when they stand in stark opposition to the true God and determine to worship other things, God intervenes and judges them. And the weak Helpless Samson has strength again. And he pulls the pillars together. And we read that in one moment, he kills more of the opposition, he kills more of the enemy of God and his people in one moment by that one event than in the rest of his life put together. More than that, He delivers his people. We don't read about the Philistines again through the rest of Judges. All of the ruling class is wiped out. 
They become weep, weak. They, they are hamstrung as a people. God's people are freed. Because God intervenes. Is that the end of the story? Well, it could be. It's certainly the end of Samson. They come and they take his body and they bury his body with his forefathers. But I think that this story casts three shadows. The first shadow is this. It casts a shadow of warning over Israel. The story of Samson is amazingly framed. It's told in four phases, really, you could argue. Four phases of relationship. He starts off in a relationship with his mother, who is what? What did we see of Samson's mother? She was an honest, godly woman. A a God-fearing woman. In fact, when her husband was falling apart, she was the one who held it together. Starts off well. He was in relationship with that woman, his mother. A good relationship. But that soured. He didn't treat her with the respect that he should have done. And the relationship really was not what it should have been. The next relationship is with a Philistine woman. A a marriage, yes, but a marriage with the enemy. And then we decline to a third relationship. A relationship with a woman who is not his wife. A relationship with a prostitute. And then we have the fourth woman in the life of Samson. A woman who is not just a prostitute, a woman who is an antagonist, a woman who is a hater of Samson. Do you see the decline? Do you see the stream of decline? And it casts a shadow over Israel, over God's people, saying, this is what you are. You are a people who has abandoned me. You are a people who we started well. But you have gone away and you have turned your back on me and you have married others and you have prostituted yourselves and you have slept in the bed of the antagonists of me. You have turned your back on me and I will use this Judge Samson and his life to be a picture for you and for us today to be a picture. Do you remember we said right at the very beginning what was the problem with God's people is they'd gone into the land but they had not purged it. They'd not cleansed it. They'd not got rid of the stuff that was going to cause them problems. And guys, we are living today as believers, many of us. And I I look in the mirror and I say, I am not what I ought to be. I am somebody who is still living in the land without purging the land in my heart. I have not dealt with issues. I continue to face issues. And if I can say that, I know that you can say it as well. I know that you can say it as well, or you should be able to say it. That we are not grappling with the stuff that becomes a snare to us. We read in the Bible, later on in Psalms, we read this. Sorry, uh, in Chronicles we read this. God talking about God's people. What's the outcome of this? Does Samson's story turn them round? No. They carry on on the trajectory. Chronicles, we read this. They were unfaithful to the God of their ancestors and prostituted themselves to the gods of the people of the land whom God had destroyed before them. They've lived lives 
where they have not got rid, they've lived lives that have absorbed. And that is the statement that comes just before God's people are taken into exile. We need to hear this today. We need to know that we are not living the lives that we ought to live. But at the same time, does that mean that God's mission is turned over by Samson, uh, by Samson's failure? No. Because of what God is like. Not because of what Samson is like. Because of what God is like. The Lord is compassionate and gracious. Slow to anger. Abounding in love. He will not always accuse. Nor will he harbour his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. Or repay us according to our iniquities. In the face of the crisis of Samson, in the face of the crisis of my life, in the face of the crisis of your life, the greatest message is that God is not one who treats us as we deserve to be treated. He is one who is gracious. That is the kind of God that we need. That is the God that we have. One is casting a shadow over the unfaithfulness of Israel. And the second shadow is the shadow of Jesus. What happens when Samson frees his people? When all of the opposition is stood against him, gathered against him, in this cacophony of hatred... What happens to God's people, the faithless ones who are nowhere to be seen? What happens? One man dies and they go free. Does that ring a bell? One man dies and they go free. When the disciples who are with Jesus have scattered, gone in every other direction because they are terrified. When one man dies... They go free. If we read this story and we only ever think as this uh, an interesting, albeit exciting, excerpt in the life of Israel, we miss the point. Because this is about one man dying so that the people go free. It's almost like that picture, if you've seen it, the Lion, Witch in the Wardrobe where um, the white witch brings Aslan to the stone table. And there are, there are goblins and, and all of the kind of horrible monsters who are just surrounding Aslan as he, as he is dragged up to the stone table. And she kills him on the stone table. And it's as though that's triumph. <laughs> I guess there's a moment where Samson seems dead to the Philistines. Oh, he stood up. But after all, he's blind. And as far as they're concerned, he is weak and powerless. He's helpless. He's a dead man walking as far as they're concerned. But then they see that he wins. For a moment, as the stones come falling down on top of them, they know that Samson has triumphed and they are defeated. And Aslan, when he's raised again, he says this. The witch knew the deep magic. There is a deeper magic still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. 
But if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness of the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. I think that is C.S. Lewis genius. Satan, the Roman authorities, the hatred of the Jews, the combination of the powers of this world, standing against Jesus for a moment thinking, we've won, he's dead. (laughs) But God, before time began, had another purpose. Another purpose which affects us today. And the other purpose is this, that when one willing victim dies who bears No guilt. And there's only ever been one, which is Jesus himself. Willingly dies in the place of others. Death reverses itself. Death reverses itself. That's amazing, isn't it? There have been a couple of sporting tragedies. One today. MotoGP rider killed but it doesn't take does it the high profile deaths to make us think it doesn't take the big sporting deaths to make us think we're always so close and it is only Jesus who gives us the hope to say that death can reverse he reverses death And that's the third great shadow. The shadow of grace. Because after all, who goes free in this story? Who goes free is the people who in the previous chapter have been willing to hand Samson into the hands of the Philistines. They're not great people. They're not good people. But they go free. Do you want another amazing perspective on grace? Go to Hebrews chapter 11. Have we been looking at Samson and thinking this guy is a complete waste? He's just a crisis. He's a disaster. And then he prays a prayer right at the very end which says, Yahweh, sovereign Lord, remember me. Let me die with the Philistines. Uh, Does that ring a bell? Let me die with the Philistines. Jesus dies with the transgressors. He dies with the guilty. And and Samson says, let me die with the guilty. I'll die with the guilty so that others can go free. And this is what we read of Samson in Hebrews. What more shall I say? I do not have time to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson and Jephthah and the prophets. Who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice and gained what was promised. Samson did it through faith. (laughs) Do you know what? I find that so amazing. We've spent the past few weeks looking at Samson and realising this is a man who is a disaster. 
And yet at the last moment, because God continues to work, because God is faithful, he moves in his heart so that he turns to God, and then we get to Hebrews and he's written about. Is there a whole load of caveats about Samson? Is there a whole load of things that say, well, he was pretty good, but on these other areas he was a bit flaky? No, it says he was a man of faith. You know what? I'm a failure. You're a failure. We've not been what we should be. But when we stand before God, because of Jesus, if we trust and believe in him, he will say this, you're faithful. That's what it means to be justified, because he's already said that. He said you're justified if you believe in him. If you do not believe in him, you, do, you are not justified. You're condemned already, John tells us. You're condemned already. But if you believe in him, you are justified already. You're faithful. I love that. I can't live without it. I can't live without the fact that he will say, Paul, it doesn't matter everything that has gone before and everything that is to come that, that would discredit you that would write you off from an eternity with me, it doesn't matter. Because what matters is I've declared that you are faithful because of my son. I need that, you need that. Three clouds, three shadows, three little hints. A hint of unfaithfulness, let's watch ourselves. A hint of the glory of Jesus who died with the transgressors and a hint of grace which says that is the God who we need. Samson, if we've got anything, we've got to get to this. Everywhere we look in this book, it's taking us to Jesus, isn't it? If it's not taking us to Jesus, we've missed the point. And that's precisely where Samson finally takes us. He reminds us the way God deals is by dying in the place of the guilty. Isn't that amazing?